Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 6th, 2020. This is episode 2706 of the Survival Podcast. And I'm titling today's show Another Roundtable Edition. That's right, it's Another Roundtable Edition. And uh, the reason I'm saying another is because I already did one this week. I did it Monday? I guess Monday I did a roundtable. It was either Monday or Tuesday. I did a really long one in topic sense. I don't think it was long for the show. I think it was about a minute, an hour, 20 minutes, right? Something like that. Like, so... I try to keep the show under an hour and a half is, is my goal. I don't always succeed, but somewhere between 55 minutes and an hour and 20 seems about the right length for y'all. Uh, and, and the last one I did, a really long list. I've got a pretty good list today, but um, not anywhere near as long. So I'm going to go a little deeper into the individual topics, and there's a couple things that are going to happen today or not happen today, I should say. Number one, we will not be talking about COVID today. In fact, that will be the only time I say the word or HCQ or any of the crap around that. Uh, I'm frustrated with it. Um, I think it's a it's a big issue of our time, but can't do it every day. Uh, so we won't be talking about that. And we're going to be talking about a lot of things that are really uh, both philosophical and concrete today. The other thing that's going to be happening today, I don't know if I will do every segment this way, but I've got an old iPhone set up in front of me with a microphone hooked up to it. And I'm going to take most of these segments and I'm going to make videos of them. And then I'll be, over the next week or two, uploading those segments to YouTube where you can share individual segments. Because I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for things like that today. Here's what we're talking about today. Uh, and some of this came from the latest episode of Unloose the Goose, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, episode four of Unloose the Goose we did last night. Um, we uh, we have said goodbye to one of our, our gaggle members already because he wants to pursue other things, and it's really that the, 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 the project's not going where he wants to be right now, and that's Vin Armani. So Vin is always welcome to come back, but he won't be a regular uh, member uh, there anymore. He wants to dig deep into mysticism right now in what he calls the dim age, and that's where he wants to put his time, along with coding his crypto projects. So you know, we wish him well, and, and hopefully he'll come back around. But we needed somebody to really kind of anchor uh, along with um, Xavier Hawk the crypto space. Like I think it's always good to have people that are really informed about a topic um, that you have more than one of them. You don't have a person for that. You have two people that so you can get arguments and disagreements and different perspectives. So Sal Mayweather, also known as Sal the Agarist, is, uh, is now an official Gaggle member. So that's pretty cool. Um, anyway, we're going to talk about the super easy and cheap way to start with crypto and what not to worry about. I talked about this last night on the show, but with it going all over the place, I want to give you guys a really clear, concise way to start taking cryptocurrency as payments with no money out of pocket immediately. Immediately. And then a very cheap way to get started using it if you don't immediately have somebody that wants to give you or buy from you with crypto. Uh, we're going to talk about unleashing the full power of 3D printing. I'm only going to say a little bit about that. And I'm really glad Sal's joined us at Unloose the Goose because that's right up his alley. And we'll be talking about that more in the future. I may have him come on and talk about it here. Um, we're going to talk about something that seems really, really small, going a totally different way now, getting outside of cryptocurrency and technology. Today, I put out a video. I found a small little tiny, itty-bitty bullhead catfish living in one of my backyard ponds. Uh, I'm talking three-quarters of an inch. That is a bigger deal than you might imagine. I'll explain why when we get to that segment. Um, then I just, something happened cool on Facebook with somebody posting some just funny pictures, and one of them was a, a, a cobra. 
And it was what snakes would like if they had hands. And they had the cobra kind of reared up like a cobra does, showing its beautiful, impressive, and don't mess with me hood. You know, when they're hooded out, like, I'm going to bite you if you, like, come on now. Leave me alone. Um, and then the arms that were drawn on it, basically the cobra's giving the double bird. I'm going to talk about why the cobra, especially when you do that to it, might be the, the best symbol for agorism that you could ever have. Okay? Um, getting started with chickens as a system, not just as livestock. That came off the Telegram group for, for uh, Unloose the Goose. Next few I'm going to give you are all uh, from that group. Uh, somebody also asked about on that group uh, introducing birds to your existing flock and dealing with extra roosters. Uh, living as prepared as you can in the city if you have to or if you want to. Like, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, rural life, even if it's suburban. So what if you have to really live in, in the city, in the town, small apartment, condo, small house, very small yard, high density, well, what do you do? And there's limits. I, I can't tell you that it's as easy, but there's a lot you can do, and there's a lot of advantages to living in high density in some areas. We'll try to cover that. Um, how much ammo should you store before it's just panic buying? Uh, storing seeds versus hoarding seeds, what really makes sense. We're going to kind of combine those. Um, question, can agorism really beat the system? It depends, and it does every day at the same time. And what is a loophole in reality? And I've already made a decision reading that list to you guys today. I'm not going to video all of these. I'm going to video three or four of them just for some show segments to add to the YouTube content. Um, but I'm going to start doing that a little bit more because it's actually a really simple, easy thing to do and a way to generate extra content. Uh, it's a way to make a hobby a little more profitable, right? I mean, th that makes sense. Well, that brings us to our quote of the day today. Our quote of the day today is by an American author named Scott Alexander. And he one time said of money and hobbies, he said, making money is a hobby that will complement any other hobbies you have beautifully. Making money is a hobby that will complement any other hobbies you have beautifully, Scott Alexander. There's a lot in that. I mean, I can do almost a full segment on that alone. Let's try to keep it brief just with a couple thoughts. Number one, a hobby is something you do because you enjoy it and you just kind of work it into your life. That, that, that's the way a hobby is. Like A lot of people think of a hobby like a guy that's like a model railroad hobbyist, and he goes in his little room by himself, and he plays with those little trains or whatever. They think of a hobby as being you know, a person that builds models, and those are hobbies. You know, The guy sits there, and he builds a ship inside a bottle or something. Those are hobbies, but those are very specific kind of time-focused hobbies. A lot of people that fish and go fishing three or four times a week or two or three times a week or three or four times a month or maybe two or three times a month, fishing's a hobby. But it's not like I have to go sequester myself. It's just I kind of like I'm on my way home from work. I got some stuff in the car. There's that place where there's some fish. I'm just going to stop here for half an hour and fish and have an after-work beer that I picked up at the convenience store, and then I'm going to go home. And there's so much in our lives that are like that. They're just like, hey, there's the opportunity. Let me partake in it. Uh, you know, it just so happens that I have an extra hour right now, and this is what I want to do. And then a lot of people have hobbies they don't even think of as hobbies. How about watching TV? Watching TV is a hobby. What else is it if it's not a hobby? You know, plop on the couch, hit the button, turn the boob tube on, and watch TV. Like, most of what people do, if they do it frequently, could be looked at as a hobby. And they do it to the point where it's ingrained in their life. If you start looking at opportunities to make money the same way, 
all of a sudden you start making money, and making money becomes a hobby. The other thing is a hobby can actually at least pay for itself or make money. You know, I'm going to talk a little bit about the backyard today uh, and the ponds in the backyard and the little bitty catfish that's in the pond, right? Now, that little catfish, I'll save my thoughts on him for later, but I think you'll be able to relate back to this when I get to it. But, I mean, the other thing that's in that pond is all these beautiful goldfish and koi. Well, I can take something that's a goldfish that I have less than a dollar in, and I can figure out that the feed that that fish is going to consume over a couple of years is like three bucks. And I can sell that fish on Craigslist or eBay for a hundred bucks. I've done it. I've done it. I've sold stupid goldfish, nine cent feeder goldfish that ended up looking really cool. And I don't really care that it looks really cool. And I've sold it. I've sold just plain, I'm talking comic goldfish for $50. Now, I'm not going to sell a hundred of them. I'm not going to sell a hundred of them for $50. I'm not going to make, you know, five grand on them. That's not going to happen. But I can make a hundred bucks a year, and then all the food that those fish eat is free, and everything else that comes out of there is profit. Now, making money is a hobby, from a hobby. That's another way to look at it. I learned about thinking about things that way from a good friend of mine named David. Uh, the same with, you know, my fish tanks. I can sell a few plants out of my tanks a week, and I can make an extra thousand bucks a year from my fish tanks that are my hobby. And that is both the hobby making money and making money into a, make, making money a hobby. And it's a funny thing that like most of the things in our lives are hobbies are things that give us pleasure. And that's the point of Scott Alexander's quote. If we start making money into a hobby, that doesn't mean everything we do to make money is part of the hobby. But if we look for all these little opportunities, these little layups, make 10 bucks there, save 20 bucks there. Make 50 bucks here, make a thousand bucks there. Maybe once a year do something a little bit extra that makes us 20 or 30 thousand dollars. I know a guy that does that with bees. He doesn't hardly collect any honey. All he does is make nukes, which is little starter boxes for the next beekeeper. Sells them two days a year, one weekend a year. He makes about 80, 80 to 150 nukes, somewhere in that range. But he puts over $20,000 in his pocket, almost all in cash, in one long weekend. And what he does for the bees the rest of the time is a hobby. It doesn't really bother him, and he has a really great place, and the bees pollinate all his stuff. So he likes having the bees there anyway. He's developed his own method of splitting hives, does that once a year, makes the money in cash. Nobody between him and the fence post knows about it, and he goes on with his life. He has an extra $20,000 a year. A lot of people go out and work really hard in a part-time job to make that $20,000. He's made making money into a hobby. Think about that as we go through some of the stuff with today's show. And I want to start out with not necessarily making money as a hobby, but getting into cryptocurrency. And I want to give you the way to get started and to think about it without worrying about things you don't need to worry about. And for those um, watching on YouTube, this is part of episode 2706 of the Survival Podcast. There will be a link in the notes. And for those listening to the MP3 via iTunes or something like that, if you'd like to share the segment that we're going to talk about here with getting started with cryptocurrency, you can come to the show notes and you can find the video where you can share just this segment, which should be about five to ten minutes long. So I just want to give you the super easy way to start with cryptocurrency today, and I want to give you what to do and what not to worry about. So I want to start out with what not to worry about. Stop worrying about the IRS and the government if you don't have any cryptocurrency and you just want to get started. 
This is the most asinine thing, and it's always some guy that has like, I only have like a hundred bucks to get started with. Why are you worried about the IRS and a hundred dollars? Stop it. Just stop it. And when I explain to you how all this works today, you're going to realize why that's really not the thing you need to be worried about. But the best thing I can advise anybody to do to get started with cryptocurrency is just go get a wallet. Get an app-driven wallet. I'm going to talk about Jack's Liberty because it's the wallet that I use and I'm comfortable with. Somebody's going to come in and say, you should use this or use that. Use whatever you want. It's okay. It really is. I won't. I, I don't have any brand loyalty beyond Jack's uh, that I use it and I like it and it's always worked for me and I've been using it for years. So the Jack's Liberty wallet, you can go into the, you know, the, the, the Android store or the iTunes store or whatever and download it to your phone. You won't have to give them any information. You won't have to put an ID in. You won't have to do anything. You just install it. When you do, you're going to get a passphrase. That passphrase will be how you rebuild your wallet if you lose it and how you put it on a second device. Write the passphrase down exactly, perfectly right. Make sure you have it exactly, perfectly right. And then go set up another device with it, enter it, and make sure before you do anything with it, before you have any money tied up in it, that you have it right. Now, with the Jack's wallet, you can always reveal that passphrase. And you can learn all about the features of it in your own time. And you're not going to worry about somebody stealing your crypto because when we start using it, we're going to have like 50, 100, 150 bucks in it. And we're just going to stop worrying about that. We're not going to go out and buy a hardware wallet to play around with $100 worth of crypto because you wouldn't give me $85 to insure $120 in your jar in your house. So we're just going to let that go and we're going to relax. Now we have a wallet installed. We can now receive cryptocurrency. Eventually, when we have it, we can send cryptocurrency. The easiest thing to do now is to tie into your network of people that you do business with. You might think, I don't have a business. Okay, do you sell anything to anybody at any time? So talk to anybody that you're going to do business with who's going to be giving you money and ask them if they'll pay you in crypto. And if they say yes, then accept crypto. You are now accepting crypto. How do you do that? Let's say you want Bitcoin. You go in your Jack's wallet, you click on Bitcoin. It says zero. You have no Bitcoin yet. You go into your Bitcoin component of the wallet and you hit receive. It will give you an address. You give that address to the other person and they send Bitcoin to it. That is all. You have now received Bitcoin. You now have Bitcoin in your wallet. That is it. You don't need a payment gate. If you sell something online, this is the thing about people that use cryptocurrency. They know how it works and they want to use it. Before you get all sophisticated with payment gateways and all, you can just say, I take crypto, contact me for individual payment instructions. And then you send that person an address, and then you fill their order however you normally fill it. You've now accepted crypto. You've now done business in crypto. Congratulations. You are now more experienced and better using crypto than 90% of Americans. Now, talk to all the people that you buy shit from and find out if any of them already accept cryptocurrency. If they do, take some of your cryptocurrency and pay for something or one of your bills in crypto. You now are at 99.9% better Than, than, than most people when it comes to crypto. You've now received and spent crypto, and it's cost you no money. You've received money because you did something for money that you would get anyway, and you bought something you would have bought with money anyway. If you can't do that, if you don't have anybody to start out with that will buy from you and you need crypto, you're going to have to buy it. I suggest you go to Coinbase and you buy some crypto. They'll talk to the IRS on the shelf, please, with the IRS bullshit. Okay, This is the problem here. 
You've been convinced the word cryptocurrency is a bad word, that you're somehow doing something you're not supposed to just because you've touched cryptocurrency, that somehow you will be marked forever and they will come chase you down, hunt you down, beat your face and take all your money out of your ass and leave you there bleeding because you touched cryptocurrency. This must stop. You must stop thinking this way. You know who thinks this way? People that don't even make 50 grand a year are the ones that think this way. People with a hundred bucks to buy cryptocurrency with think this way. That is too small to register on the radar. If you go to Coinbase and buy $100 worth of Bitcoin, no one is going to tell the IRS, you are small potatoes, you are not worth worrying about. If you make 50, 75 grand a year and you do your taxes with a straight 1040 or a 1040 EZ, you are not going to get audited by the IRS. You are not worth auditing. If you're a business person like me, they'll come after you and audit you. Trust me. I, I understand this. I know this. But most of the people that worry the most about the IRS have the least to worry about. Especially when it comes to a hundred bucks worth of crypto. So yes, you go to, you go to Coinbase. You fill out the form. You have to give them your ID. You have to link to a bank account. You have to do all the shit you would do to set up a PayPal account today. Nobody freaks out about that, but also we're going to freak out because it involves Bitcoin. I bought my car with freaking Bitcoin. The government's not taking me away and the stuff that I, the, the Bitcoin I bought my car with, I had to convert to cash. The dealership wouldn't take me. I'll pay taxes on the gains on that Bitcoin. Because that I chose to bring into the ecosystem that is theirs. Right? So you figure out how to do that. To get started, stop worrying about something that doesn't matter. Go to Coinbase. Use my link if you would please do so. If not, it's okay. I mean, I'm going to get 10 bucks out of it. You get an extra 10 bucks by doing it. Go to Coinbase. Set up an account. You'll get your 10 bucks in Bitcoin when you fund your account with at least $100 in Bitcoin. That's when I'll get my 10 bucks too. I'm just disclosing that. I'm not doing this only so you will, so I can make some Bitcoin from Coinbase, right? I've been, I've been working with Bitcoin since 2014. First segment I've ever done like this, first video I've ever done like this. So I'm not doing it for personal gain. It's been six years. All right, so now you have Bitcoin and Coinbase. I want you to treat a Coinbase account the way that I treat my PayPal account. My PayPal account does pay a few bills, okay, but mainly it receives money from my business operations. I go into my PayPal account every couple days, and I take all the money that's in my PayPal account, and I send it to my bank account. It's much more secure and safe in there. So that's where I want it. I want it in my bank account. And then from there, some of it goes into an account that's put aside to pay my taxes. Some of it goes into a checking. Some of it goes into savings. Some of it goes into investment. But I get it the hell out of PayPal. Good practice. PayPal could lock your account up because they're upset with you over something, etc. Get the money out frequently. When you buy Bitcoin or receive Bitcoin into a Coinbase account, as soon as you get it, as soon as there's enough in there that you don't get ate up with transaction fees or whatever, as soon as it's worth doing, if it's $5, it's probably not, send it to your wallet. So go to, pay, go to Coinbase, buy $100, $200 worth of Bitcoin, send it to your Jack's wallet. Now, it'll take you a while. You'll freak out. Oh, my God, is it, did I do it wrong? Well, it will be fine. Do make sure you put the address in right. Copy and paste is a good way to do that. Now you have it in your wallet. Now it's yours. Now, go find some people that take cryptocurrency and spend it. But I'm holding on to Okay, you want to hold on to what? $100, $150? Okay. Buy two to $250 and go buy something with the rest, which would have been what you would have done with it if you left it as money. Learn how to use it. Learn how to use it. Don't be afraid to spend it. 
And understand that when you get the money from PayPal or from Coinbase, and you the, the, it's not money, when you get the Bitcoin and you send it to your wallet, yes, if they ever were to go look at that record, they can see this was bought on this date and sent here. They don't know where it went or who it went to. If you hold it, you don't owe any taxes. If I buy Bitcoin today and move it to a wallet and move it to another 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 wallet, but I haven't actually spent it or sold it, I owe nothing. Well, where is it? I moved it to a wallet. Can you show it to us? I've lost my keys. Can I write that down as a capital loss? Do you understand me? Now, this is why you use jacks. This is where everybody breaks down and doesn't understand this most basic thing about Bitcoin. What really makes it you know, anonymous or pseudo-anonymous is that there's an address anybody can look at in a ledger. That's, that's true. Whose address is that? This is a big, long string of characters. Who owns that? If you bought it in Coinbase, well, you do, if they ever check the records. And the only records that Coinbase has given the IRS were for a specific period of time and transactions over $10,000. That's not you with your 100 bucks. And even if they do, so what? It's 100 bucks. Where is it? It's over here. Can I see it? No, I don't have to show it to you. I didn't sell it. Do you have a transaction record saying I, I, I sold it? Yeah. Or I spent it. The day I bought it, I spent it. There's no gain, there's no loss, there's nothing to report. I just was doing business with somebody who wanted Bitcoin, so I bought some Bitcoin to pay for it. Why? None of your business. Who are they? None of your business. Don't have to tell you that. Bye. Don't be afraid of the IRS. You have to be respectful of the IRS. Do not be afraid of the IRS, IRS in an irrational, irrational way. So that's, that's how we take care of that. But every time we receive money with Bitcoin into a Jack's Liberty wallet, we hit receive, we get a brand new address that nobody has ever had used before. Even though it's all in one wallet, it's all the receipts are to different addresses. And that's true of most of the currencies in there. Then there's a thing called shapeshift. So let's say, well, I need to be able to pay this person in Bitcoin Cash, or I actually want some Bitcoin Cash or whatever. You go into Jax, you'll figure it out, you say change this much Bitcoin into this much Bitcoin Cash, and you hit a button, and it all happens, and that is all done with no customer record at all. You don't have to set up an account, put in a driver's license, any of that stuff. That's the best way to get started. I'm not going to go any longer than that. It's went about 10 minutes. It's longer than I planned. But if you'll take that step, I'm not going to say you're going to become a cryptocurrency expert. What I'm going to say is you'll stop being afraid of it, and you're playing with a couple hundred dollars. And until you do that, you're going to be afraid of it. You're not going to understand it. You're not going to get how it works. So get a little bit, spend it. Trade with it and start taking it from other people and, and be willing to take any currency that's in that wallet, that Jack's wallet. There's a lot of different options that anybody wants to spend with you. And you'll find there's like three or four that people actually use. Next up today, guys, and this one won't be in a video segment. I'm going to be real brief with it because I don't know a ton about it. But I just want to kind of get your mind going around the, the whole concept of making money, being self-sufficient and self-reliant and agorism. Um, And it's 3D printing. And I'm talking to somebody right now. I haven't got back to him, but somebody reached out to me about bringing a 3D printer to the fall workshop. Uh, that sounds like a great idea and probably will be something we'll do in one flavor or another. But we talked about 3D printing a little bit last night with our newest member of the Goose Squad, the Gaggle over at Unloose the Goose, Sal the Agarist. Uh, also, Sal Mayweather is his actual name. And uh, he's pretty big on 3D printing. And when he brought it up, One of the objections to it came from Curtis Curtis Stone, and he said, "You know, they they the, the, you you know we we do we build a lot of tools and stuff that we sell, and that 
the problem with 3D printing is how long it takes and you have to get the material and all and what have you. And the, the, the ink, if you want to think about it as ink, right? That will, that's an issue that, that I think the market will solve in time. It will become less expensive and more available. Uh, Curtis was talking about the government restricting access to the ink, basically, the, the, the material, right? Uh, I can't think of the right word for it, but the stuff that actually does the printing. And I think that's going to be all but impossible to do. I really do. Um, it, it really, if you think about some of the other pl things that are highly regulated or restricted that the base components of you can still get your hands on. So in other words, you can say you can't buy a certain piece for a firearm because it constitutes a gun. You can't make block steel illegal, right? And that's, that's kind of where you're going there. But his other objection was that, you know, it's too slow. And I think that's, and we talked about it last night, I think that's really short-sighted on what 3D printing can do and what its power is. The, the point of 3D printing is not to have Joe's Manufacturing doing all their manufacturing with a giant 3D printer in the basement. Like, that's, that's not the point. The point is for Joe Blow to have a 3D printer in his basement, And if he wants something that Rick Blow makes and sells, instead of having to pay Rick for it, he can buy the program. And the program magically can go across the interwebs into Joe Blow's little hand, hot little hands, and he can drop that code with the appropriate media, I think is the right word for it, the media, the, the printer stuff, the, the 3D ink, into his computer and push a button and lo and behold he has a part or a thing and they have now done business now if we go back to what we just talked about with cryptocurrency we have ways that we can have that transaction be as trustless as any other transaction on the internet and there's no third party partner like a PayPal or a MasterCard or a VeriSign that's involved The transaction happens between Joe and Tom Blow, and they're the only ones that ever need to know about it, and data was exchanged for data. And that data can be fully encrypted end-to-end -end on both ends. Now, what this means to Tom, Tom Blow, who's selling to Joe Blow, is that, yes, instead of selling him 20 units of Widget Z, I sold him the code for Widget Z, for one-time use. And he can he can make a hundred widgets or a thousand widgets or a million widgets. Or I might even have like it could be rented. There's I'm sure there's ways we can do that as well. Just like where you sometimes you, you go on to let's say Apple TV and you want to see a movie and it says buy for or rent for. I'm sure there's ways to do that too. So maybe I don't really need to pay you the full price because I only need two of these things and I don't think I'm ever going to need it again and I'm happy to pay for it again if I need it again. Or maybe I get it for three days, and in three days I can print five of them. Who knows, right? But does it even matter? Because what is Tom Blow's profit on this? It's 100%. And unless Tom Blow wants to pay taxes on it, what's his tax burden on this? Zero. And that's why I'm going to just, I'm priming with that, and I'm going to come back later. Uh, the second to the last segment of the show, and I'm going to talk about Orgorism beating the system. Can Orgorism really take the system down, take down the man? You know, Can we do that? And I'm going to bring this idea back as part of that segment when I get to it. Let's go to something totally different. 
Right? So I promise you variety today. Here it comes. The real power of something that seems so small, like a little catfish. So today I was out filling up the ducks' pools like I do every morning. I had a nice little video I had already shot of a leafhopper that had been completely drained of its existence by a spider. I just thought that was cool. Like a spider left it sitting on a leaf of a Swiss chard plant. Almost like a cat leaves a dead mouse head on the, on the front porch for you. Like, look what I did. Look what I did, Daddy. I, I killed the leafhopper for you. So I'd already videoed that, so I was already in a good mood. And I just went and tore all the excess growth out of my smaller Miyagi, my eight-foot Miyagi. I talked about that earlier this week. And I have these towers in, in there for habitat, and they're built on center blocks. So it's like three or four center blocks high. And then ceramic tiles go across to make a bench that I can sit plants on. Well, I just pulled the plants off one of those benches, so it allowed me to see fish that were swimming in there in very shallow water that normally I might not notice. And I look and I see a little fish about three-quarters of an inch long swimming along the bottom and feeding off like the algae growing on it. And I'm like, he's a little different than what I... It's not a minnow. And I look closer, and what is it? It's a little bullhead catfish. Now, the last time I've put a fish in that tank at all was probably three years ago. I've taken some out and moved them to other tanks. I haven't put any fish into that tank in at least three years. I promise you I've never put a bullhead in that tank three-quarters of an inch long, and if it was alive for that long, it would be bigger than three-quarters of an inch. That fish was born in that tank. Bullheads in that tank, there's probably eight or nine of them. There's at least one male and one female that are successfully breeding and reproducing. And how many will I have? I don't know. I just know that it is happening. That's as much as I know now. The power of that. My little pawns have always had the limitation of... What you take out, you must replace. So if I want to eat 20 fish in the next six months, then I better bring 20 to 25 to account for some death, new fish of a similar kind into the various ponds in the same period. So I basically bring in babies, I use that like a battery, and I grow them and charge them up into adults, and when I consume them, there has got to be something to replace them. I have to feed them. I have to buy feed, but feed's cheap, and I can buy three years worth of feed at a time if I want, throw it in a garbage can and I'm good. You know, one steel garbage can full of feed, I'm good for three years, but that's self, that, that, that's self-reliance. I have three years of self-reliance. I have 0% self-sufficiency there. I don't have a machine I can push and catfish pellets fall out. But I have some self-sufficiency in that I have lots of tanks, and in many of these tanks I have breeding minnows and shrimp and snails, all that I have fish that eat them. And those minnows and, and what have you, I do usually feed them some supplemental fish flake, but mostly they eat algae and mosquito larvae, and they live, like, off plankton, which I have no cost in. So now <clears throat> I have some level of self-sufficiency there. And so I can go over to one of my tanks. I can take and th throw a little handful of pellets in there or maybe even a couple pieces of worm out of my garden beds, and I got nothing in it from outside throw that in there and I wait and the minnows come chomp on it. I take a net and boom, and now I've got 100 to 200 minnows. I mean, that's they swarm this time of year. And I go over to my pond that has my predator fish in it. I flip the net over and I start hearing bloop, 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 and they eat the minnows. So now I've got a closed loop system except fish aren't reproducing. When the bullheads start reproducing, I've now got a very hardy fish. It's almost impossible to kill as long as the pump runs. That's reproducing 
that will grow to an edible size that's like a nice little size to eat, little pan fry size in about one year, and it can grow into a fish that's about as big as it's worth growing into. Bullheads, once they get past a certain size, they're like half head. And at that point, you might as well go ahead, and unless you're using them as breeding stock. So that little thing, that little fish, that little turn in the ecosystem, that little development begins to create a system that is far more self-sufficient, even though it's only eight feet by eight feet by about three and a half feet deep. That's really cool, and I just wanted to share that with you guys today. Now, next up, I want to talk to you about something else. This, Like I said, this came up on social media. Uh, one of the people that, that I talk to a lot on Facebook, um, it was either Jason or Carson. I'm not remember which one it was now. I think it was Jason. Um, Jason from PA, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so just something for fun, and it was a whole bunch of pictures of snakes, and somebody had, like, drawn little stick arms on them. And one was, like, a vine snake, and it's, like, you know... Put, like doing the thinker thing, like because they have that kind of cool little face to them, and like where it's holding its chin. And uh, one was like um, it was some sort of a racer. I don't remember what now, but it had its mouth open, like it was threatening, but it looked happy. So it had like the two fingers pointing, like yeah, like like you know, like kind of shooter fingers. Uh, but then there was a cobra, a cobra, and the cobra was it was a beautiful picture of a cobra. I think cobras are a beautiful snake, and where it's raised up and the hoods out, and it's a profile from the side. And you look at those cobra eyes, and cobras are intelligent. But somebody had drawn uh, little stick arms coming up from like its midsection, and it was doing a double bird, like flipping off whatever it was hooded at. This is agorism personified in a snake. I don't think you can personify in an animal. Anamorphized in a snake, whatever, right? Um, I want to explain to you a little bit about cobras so that this will make sense. Because it will make so much sense, and you'll see how it kind of fits in with the whole thing we were doing with using geese as a, as a kind of a thing. So the cobra is not just one of the more dangerous snakes from a, a standpoint of venom. It is a snake that is, for a snake, very intelligent. Cobras, along with some other venomous snakes and some other harmless snakes, are what are called denertal. They're day-active, and they are sight hunters. Right, uh, coach whips, American coach whip snakes, um, garter snakes are actually very intelligent little snakes for a snake's brain. Any snake that actively hunts moving critters, there's not an ambush. So a rat snake, it, it, they love eggs because eggs don't run away. But they, if they're hunting rats, they find a place where a rat might come by. They coil up and they wait, and when a rat comes, bam! They don't really go chase a rat down. They don't come. You won't see a rat snake slither through your backyard, lift its head up and look like a little periscope, and see a rat and go after it. You will see a ribbon snake do that and hunt fish, and you will see a cobra do that and hunt, among other things, other snakes. You'll see a cobra do that. That's one of the reasons they have that behavior where they lift their head up like that. So they are, for a snake, again, they are incredibly intelligent. So they're smart. And because they're smart, they know what they are. A cobra knows that it's a cobra. It's self-aware to a level, that not like humans, but it's self-aware to the fact that it has venom. And it knows what it's capable of. And it would prefer not to use it on an animal larger than itself that can kill it, but it will. And the whole standing up and hooding is an indication, I know what I am. 
I am telling you to leave me alone. But leave me alone can turn into F around and find out really fast. Okay? <laughs> That's the cobra. But there's something else a lot of people know about cobras. As much as they're willing to stand their ground and fight if they have to, they so much don't want to. There are actually quite a few species of cobras that will feign death. Like if they think something's coming at them and they might hood first or they might initially go to this behavior, they'll roll over on their back, they'll open their mouth like a hognose snake, and they'll, be, they'll pretend to be dead. Now, unlike a hognose snake, if you pick one up when they're feigning death, you have a 50-50 shot of that snake remaining limp or tearing into your ass and envenomating you. Right? Well, the hognose, it's, when they're, once they feign death, you can roll them around and they won't, they won't do shit. And if you leave, they kind of like turn their head back over and try to leave. Cobras, they may just bite you when they pretend to be dead. But this is libertarianism. This is the non-aggression principle. This is, I've done everything I can to get out of your way and to be left alone. And if you don't leave me alone, you're going to pay for it. Now, why I think that the cobra with the double bird is perfect for agorism. I made a meme out of that picture. And I, I, I said, agorists, when they're told to just shut up and pay their fair share of taxes. The agorist just does what the agorist wants to do when it makes sense. But they try to avoid the conflict. They don't come out and do it in the face of the state or the status. They're strategic about what they do. They think about what they do. And again, a cobra is a thinking snake. And they exist in a world and in a community. And I think this is true of all anarchists that are true anarchists that are kind of the same way. Leave me alone. However, do not think, do not think that if you come after me, I won't make you regret it. And let's be honest. If you were standing off a cobra that had the hood up and it bites you, You can kill it, and you may survive. You may die, but you may survive. There's no doubt, though, that a human has the power to kill the cobra every time. Every time. Not sometimes. Every time. And sometimes to kill the cobra without getting bit. But generally, we don't go screwing around with cobras. Because we know, leave me alone can turn to F around and find out really quick. And I just thought that was an interesting little story for you guys. Um, next up, I want to talk to you guys about chickens. Right? Getting started with chickens is a system, not just as livestock. This came off of the, uh, the Telegram group that we have for Unloose the Goose today because I was just looking for content, threw it out, and it's one of the things that came up. And, and what the person said is they're looking for chickens to be a system. Close a loop on this. And I think that's a very noble goal, and I think that the more we can close the loop, the better, but let's not let ever perfect be the enemy of the good. Okay, let's not ever do that. So let's not wait until we have this completely figured out to get involved with chickens or uh, feel that we are some way failing as a permaculturist or failing as a homesteader or failing as, as, as a chicken owner if we don't have a perfect closed system with chickens. But let's start out with not even trying to do that. Let's the basics of taking care of chickens in a responsible manner of a chicken, broken down to the most simple 
format, leaving tons of things out, but the most basic things possible. The chicken must have enough containment to not cause problems for your neighbors or to end up in a place where the chicken's going to be killed. The chicken is not smart. The cobra is smarter than the chicken, I promise you. Okay, Chickens are stupid. They're, they know what they know well, but overall they're not very intelligent animals. So we must protect them from their own stupidity, and we must protect our neighbors from their behavior. We must protect them Uh, we must protect ourselves from their behavior. So if we have a garden, we either fence the chicken out or we fence the chicken in. But if we leave the chicken go, the chicken will go in the garden and destroy the garden. So we need to figure out how we keep the chicken out of the garden. The chicken needs a place to sleep. There's a lot of ways to do this. I even know people that keep chickens almost wild. They have trees the chickens roost in, and they put steel girder around the tree so that raccoons can't climb the tree. It works pretty good. But... The best thing is some sort of a coop. So we need a place for the chicken to live. That means we need a coop. We need food and water that we uh, make sure daily is in good supply for chickens. Uh, the chickens need uh, bedding and something to absorb their droppings. Uh, they generally are not happy alone, so they need other chickens. If we're going to have eggs, then we need some place where those chickens are put away, a box for chickens to lay eggs in. We probably want some sort of lighting out there so we can see at night, and we want to make sure the chickens are protected from all the things that like to eat chickens. Because when a chicken goes to sleep on the roost, if a predator comes in there, it can literally just eat one chicken and, and then eat another chicken and then eat another chicken until it's full, and it can leave. And when it comes back the next night, if there were six chickens and it ate three... The other three chickens will be there asleep with no concerns whatsoever for what happened to the other three chickens. Like I said, they're not that smart. And when they go to sleep on the roost, anybody that's kept them that knows, when you go, if you go out early in the morning when it's still dark and you go into your chicken coop, most of the time that bird's still on that roost, you can kind of poke it and it barely will wake up. So we need to protect That's what we need. So we have to have, I'm assuming that anybody's wanting to close the loop has gone that far. So now we need to think about this. Um, where is the chicken coop? You have to go there at least twice a day. Where's the chicken coop? So the first thing in creating your loop that you want to close for your chicken coop is strategically placing the chicken coop in a place that makes sense for you to walk to on a daily basis. Okay? So that might be you moved in and there was already a building there, so you're going to make it work, so you just deal with it. If you're building a coop, Or creating a coop. Maybe you have a moving coop. I don't know. It depends. You can do chicken tractor on steroids like Jeff Lawton calls it. But if you're going to build a fixed coop, which most people will, so it's what I'm going to work with today, think about where it is. You want a path to the coop. And I'd say since we're talking about loops, you might have a path you walk straight to the coop and straight back on the same path, but you might think a little bit more about this. Can you create a loop, a true loop, out to the coop this way, back to the house that way? Now, start building in tasks to what you're going to want to look at every day in your zone one of permaculture. Zone one, a place that we walk, talk, look, touch, be, see daily. Because of our natural movement as a being. We might have made a choice to do it, but once we've set that pattern, I'm going to see this little patch of ground at least once a day every day. That could also be, instead of a loop, maybe I don't do a loop, maybe I go out to the coop and back, and then when I when I go out to the coop at night, I go out and back a different route. Doesn't have to, When I say a path, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, pl a plowed path, right? A, a, a cleared path. It could just become a path because you walk there. Walk the same place every day for a while, you'll make a path. 
Okay? So then we want to strategically locate things along that path that may or may not be directly chicken-related. But let's try to see how they could be chicken-related. If we can do it, it would be really great to put our primary kitchen garden, herb garden, that type of thing, between the chicken coop and the house, as long as we can protect that structure from said chickens. Out where those chickens are. Let's build some sort of place where chickens can be chickens and scratch and dig and eat and feed on things that are compostable. Okay? I just used some old cinder blocks and made a square. And I just throw compostables in the square. That way they don't spread it all over the place because they will if you don't. And when I go, when you go out now, we go past our garden. What do we want to do? Well, instead of weeding once a month and being miserable and cussing and hating ourselves, we weed every day or every third day or every second day, whatever works for us. And we go along and, oh, look, there's a weed. Oh, there's a weed. There's a weed. And we just pick all those weeds up on our way out to the chicken house. What should be in our hands? Some sort of egg basket. That could be a bowl, a dish, an actual egg basket, a bag. Something to bring eggs back, because if you put eggs in your pocket, you'll hate yourself. Just do it and find out. So now we're going to go out to get our chickens out for the day, whether they're in a run or free range or whatever it is, and we're going to get our eggs for the day. So we go out with our little basket. We, we pick all of our little weeds out along the way. Maybe we even look at a weed and go, you know, that's a weed they really like. Let that grow three more days, and it'll still be easy to get out. Let it grow a week, and it's going to be tough to get out. So I'm going to just, And you pick the ones that make sense. We take those weeds, and we get to where the chicken house is, and we throw that weeds into the compost. We open the door for the chickens to come out to their runner to their world, and we go in and get our eggs. We go back to the house. How many things can you do that with? If you were, like, really, like, super uber homesteading, You might have a little wood, you know, you might have a, um, a rocket stove you cook breakfast with. Little, little on the deck rocket stove. And you might have your wood pile where you keep all your little scraps of wood that you use in your rocket stove. Well, on the way back, you have your eggs. You put your little pile of sticks on top of your eggs. You go back, put that down next to your rocket stove, put your eggs away. Maybe even crack a couple, cook them on your rocket stove. And you just keep thinking that way. And so what I've always said, and th this will take you beyond the chickens system, take every system that you're building or will build on your homestead and make just make a list. Then out from there, maybe leave space between them for bullet points, whatever, every function, output, or need the system has. Chickens need to be fed. Chickens need litter, Right? Litter at times, you could do deep litter, but at times need to be changed. Right? So then you also have, so you have chickens, and then you have composting. Compost needs input. Comp compost needs carbon. Car compost needs nitrogen. Compost needs turning. Right? Compost needs ap application. And once there's, once made, we got to take it somewhere. How does it get there? Garden. Garden needs nutrient. Garden needs weeds removed. Garden needs protection from chickens. Garden produces produce. Garden produces surplus. Garden produces waste. Chickens produce feathers. Chickens produce manures. Right? And you keep making that list. And you get, you just make as much of it as you can. Then start making connections. And we already talked about some of those connections. The garden's weeds go to the compost. The chickens eat the compost. The compost gets chicken shit in it just because the chickens are in there. 
So they shit in it when they're doing that. That's more nitrogen. Now I'm not doing anything. But eventually, I have to take the chicken litter out of the chicken house and do something with it. Well, if the compost pit or pits is right next to where the chickens live, I don't have to go very far, do I? So maybe what I do is all of the garden compost comes out of the pit, right? And it goes to a compost storage area for application. And it's, it is mostly now compost that came from chicken scraps and garden weeds and things like that. That's, maybe that's one type of compost. We keep it in one type of compost holding area. And on the day that that gets cleaned out, we take all of the, the litter from the chicken house and we put that into a pit. That's a different type of compost. Maybe we mix it all together. Maybe it's up to us. But we draw those connections. What do chickens need? Chickens need shade. Chickens need sun. How do we provide shade to the chickens? Maybe we create something like a bed that's outside of their run but has a trellis over their run where we can build something. Or maybe they are free-range chickens, so we do something to keep them out of this bed, but we produce some sort of vining crop that can go over the chickens where they have a rest area. What else does that do? What else? What other function does that? And we just keep thinking that way. Because I can't tell you, here's how to set up your chicken system, because I don't know your house, your orientation, your chickens, how many chickens you have, how much work you want to do. That is how you think about any system in permaculture. You create these interconnections. And the way you, you – it, it was amazing is as soon as you list all the things that the system provides and needs, okay, its outputs and its inputs, and you start making connections, the design does it for you. Once you Then you overlay that with your behavior as an organism on your property, and everything makes sense. It really is that simple. So that's that's that one. Um, now, I did have a question about introducing new birds to your flock and some ideas that go along with that. And I'm going to give you what I do, introducing new birds to your flock. The only reason you need to do this is you've gone out and you've acquired birds. You've either acquired baby birds and you've brooded them and now they are big enough to go be with other chickens or you got adult chickens from somewhere else because somebody was willing to sell you some or give you some. So you have a chicken big enough to be around other chickens. The truth is, chickens work their shit out, and they develop a pecking order, and there's always some conflict between chickens, and they'll work it out. And you can literally just throw the chickens with the chickens. The problem with this is, new chickens need to be taught, this is where you live. This is at night, where you go, so that you're not going to get the chomp. This is your safe space. So what I like to do is if you have some sort of a chicken tractor or something like that, or let's say you have chickens that live in a free-range environment, but you also have kind of a run. So when that's what I do. I have kind of a run area that I don't. I almost never confine the chickens and ducks to. So I just leave the gate open. So every day when I go out, I open it, and whatever side of the run it is open, that's the side they go out and the part of the property they have access to. And that, that's if you're going to do free range, that's what I recommend. You still have a containment area. So you can kind of put your chicken tractor for a day or two inside the containment area. They start to get interaction. I also have my chicken tractor. with I have a little chicken tractor right now with baby chickens in it. And they are out and about on the rest of the farm. And the other birds are around them. They're kind of getting associated. But if I want to move them a couple days before they go in the coop to the run area. 
Then the day that I'm going to um, introduce them to my other chickens, I will actually I want to do that at night. So I wait till all the chickens are ready to go to sleep. And I've got everybody in the coop, and the chickens are kind of done for the night. It's dark. I've already closed the door. The chicken goes into chicken trance. I go take my new baby chickens, my new middle-aged chickens, whatever you're going to call them, my little pullets, and I put them on the roost in the chicken coop right next to the old birds. They're all asleep. They're all in their nighttime. When they wake up, it's kind of like they have bird brains. I guess you've always been there. Oh, okay. And they go on about their lives. What I'm likely to do, though, is for that day, let the birds stay in their run, or if I can do it, and it's probably easy because my old birds are used to going out. Kind of let them kind of separate in the run, open the the, the exit door, and kind of shoo everybody but the new bees out. I really want them in the run, if, if you have a run. If not, you just have to deal with this. But I want them in the run for one day. And I want them to get the experience of one evening as it starts to get dark and they start to try to bed down because they're, they're probably not roosting when they're in a tractor or whatever. They're not used to this being shooed into the coop. You might even have to catch them and physically put them in there. This helps to have two people. Then bring your other, your other boys and girls home, close up for the night. Usually once is enough. Sometimes it takes two or three days of this. But once they say, oh, this is my home, they just go there. And that's, that's how I introduce new birds. But the big thing is I just put them on the, on the roost right next to the old birds in the dark at night when everybody's sleepy. And, and I've never had a big problem with that. Sometimes birds fight, but just because they came up together doesn't mean they won't fight. Birds fight. Like, there's points where you have to, like, if you realize, like, one of your birds is really a problem and really picking on other birds, that bird has to go graduate into food. You know, that, that's coca vin, which is, which is cock and wine, basically. It's a French way of using old roosters. Or, you know, it becomes super, becomes a, if it's young enough, maybe you grill it. Like, it, like, if you have a bird that's really a problem, then it needs to go. And this is the temptation people sometimes have. They have a bird that's really being picked on by another bird. So we want to save the strong, get rid of the weak. So what do they do? They cull the bird that's being abused. Sometimes that works. But just as often as it works, the dominant bird picks a new bird to pick on. This is tends to be a big problem. What happens when you have a good rooster Sometimes a brewster will have kind of a favorite hen and he'll overbreed her, and that's a problem in of itself. Usually that can be handled with a chicken saddle. So big thing covers their back because that's where they get their, hair, their feathers pulled off. Gives them time to grow it back. Uh, the other thing about that is when the skin is raw or red, the other birds pick at it. Not, so, not necessarily to pick at it. Chickens pick at anything that's odd. It's their behavior. Right? That's why you don't want to let little chicks near your eyes. They'll peck you right in the eye, and they can damage your cornea. And they do it because, what is that? That's weird. I don't understand this thing. That's a big eye. Let me check it out. They don't have, they don't have fingers. They can't, they're like a shark. A shark feels with its teeth. It's bad for you if you're getting felt, right? So chickens are the same way. If you want to see this, if you wear a ring, put your hand in a chicken tractor with baby chicks. They'll start picking that ring right away. Ducks will do it too. They want to know what it is. So when there's a wound, they'll pick at it, not necessarily to be mean, so you'll have to cover it or do a separation. If you have true bullying... My recommendation is eat the bully. 
Which brings me to my next question that came from the same guy. What do I do with my extra roosters? He's trying to get rid of them on, on, on Craigslist and next door. Good luck. People don't want extra roosters. I mean, there's the occasional person that has like this huge piece of land and they just throw shitloads of chickens on there and, and, and their plan is to have like, if foxes and coyotes eat some, whatever, I'm breeding the super chicken that can hide in the tree and I'll just take everything and throw it on there and let them figure it out. Those people are rare. Really rare. It, it doesn't work real good usually. And that means chickens usually screw everything up. They crap on everything. They destroy everything. That's why people generally don't do this. Um, the best prop, the best solution to extra roosters is eat them. Just eat them. And Cocavin, look up how to make it. If you if you go to the site and, and search for it on the site, you'll be able to find uh, where I've actually given the recipe before. But it's basically slow cooked rooster uh, with with red wine. You know, and maybe some potatoes, maybe some noodles, whatever you want to do. I don't do noodles and really potatoes anymore, but it's slow. You, you slow cook your, your chicken with a little, uh, or your rooster with some garlic and some onion and some red wine and, and what have you. It's very, very good. Some herbs. And yet they're tough because they're, they're not meat birds or whatever. They don't have a lot of meat on them. They're still pretty good. They have a lot of flavor when you cook them that way. So that's what, that's my solution to extra roosters. And how I pick a rooster, I look for the, most pleasant rooster in a group. So right now I'm, I'm raising, I've got like 10 little uh, bantams. I'm sure I'm going to have way more roosters than I want. Who, who is the least aggressive rooster to me, to my family, and to the hens? Everybody else hangs from the oak tree. And yeah, they're, they're bantams, so they'll be little. Cornish game hens, baby. That, and you know what? I'll tell you one thing about bantams. Not a lot of meat tastes really good. Plump little suckers too, man. So that's, yeah, I know that's not the answer some people want, but most people don't want extra roosters. I've had at least six roosters in seven years now thrown over my fence. People, oh, he's got a farm, he'll be fine, and they just throw the rooster over my fence. And every one of them, I ended up, because they're, you know, they're, they're freaked out, they don't know where they are, they don't know what's going on, they start disrupting your birds. I go out and I shoot them. I shoot them in the head. It's easier than trying to run them down and catch them. And coke of in, baby. That's that's what happens if you throw a rooster over my fence. Um, question on living as prepared as you can in the city if you want to or if you have to. Um, I'm not going to go deep into this one today because I've got a bunch more to cover. I just want to say that, like, instead of worrying about, like, how do I prep because I'm in the city, evaluate your risks and prep based on your situation no matter where you are. So what are your risks... What does anybody have to deal with? Lack of food, water, security, shelter, health and sanitation, right? And communications and, 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 and defense. So you shore those things up. It doesn't matter where you are. But then you have to look at, well, what are my risks? Well, what city do you live in? Do you live in like a high rise in New York City? I, I'm telling you, I wouldn't live there. Somebody got their nose all bent because I said that on Unloose the Goose. I was really enjoying this till the end, then I was disappointed. I always love when people tell me that. Like, yeah, you know what? I got up this morning and the first thing I thought was, gee, I don't, I hope I don't disappoint you. That, that's what I, my entire goal today failed because I went and disappointed you. I, I, I can't live with myself now. Um, I wouldn't live in really big cities in urban centers. I would try to get out some. I really would. If you have to, then you have to do what you can with what you have. 
And you are going to have to rely more on self-reliance than self-sufficiency. That's the big switch to make. So out here where I live, where I have space and abilities to, to produce things for myself, like my own fish, like my own eggs, etc., I try to be as self-sufficient as I can, which we measure in a percentage. If I can produce 40% of my own food, I am 40% self-sufficient. If I can do 100%, I'm 100%. Very few people can do that. So then the other equation is self-reliance. And so I want to just give you the easy way to think about this today. Self-reliance is if I have enough batteries and lights to be able to light my home in the evening sufficient to you know, not break my neck walking around and be relatively comfortable to do that for four weeks, I have four weeks of self-reliance for lighting. If I have enough food that I can eat you know, a couple meals a day, every day, and not start you know, wasting away due to lack of nutrition or calories for 60 days, I am 60 days self-reliant for food. There's no magic. There's no trick. There's no way to change your circumstances completely to where you can live in a 600-square-foot apartment in the middle of Manhattan and be as self-reliant and self-sufficient as me outside of the city on three acres. There's no world in which all of a sudden with magic, unless you can afford like you know Blackwater as your own private security, that you can be as secure from riots and things like that in the middle of Los Angeles as I can, you know, 20 miles north of Fort Worth. I, I can't make I can't make your choice or your required place of living change for you. But I can tell you how to think about it. You might, might want to put a lot more thought into your bug out plan if you live in a city. And not just what you would take, but where you would go and what's already there. See, I think if you're going to have to live in a city, you, you need to be living with the option to get the hell out. And all I can say is, look at something that's nowhere near an apocalypse. Just COVID. How much better off was a person who had a place they could go stay outside of New York City than the person who had to stay in New York City for the last five months? Seriously. So if you have to live, like, the person that ideally needs a good, well-prepared bug-out location is the urban dweller. So maybe we'll do a show on... Creative ways to set up bug-out solutions in a not-so-distant future. Uh, next question was, how much ammo should you store before it's just panic buying? And somebody asked this, basically the same question about storing and hoarding seeds, which really makes sense. I'm going to kind of combine them and talk about you know, storage of, of anything here. So here's, here's kind of the way I want to look at, at both of these things. Let's just talk about storing in general. Storing versus hoarding in general. Um, one way we, we often explain this as preppers, and it's valid, but it, it, it's, it's only half of the equation of hoarding. We say that by being prepared when there's a crisis, we don't have to run out and procure a bunch of things. Therefore, we don't contribute to the problem, and the people that run out and grab as much as they can as fast as they can, they're the hoarders. They, they are, but they aren't. What they really are is last-minute preppers when it's too late. They are contributing to the shortage 
but it's because they're buying probably less than they should have because it's all they can get because they're in a crisis. This is why you know people are screaming, screaming, and 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 raving like madmen because you know um, a store like Best Buy had the audacity to sell a case of water for fifty bucks or whatever. Well, that store didn't sell a case of water for fifty bucks any differently than they do every day. You don't generally go like you know what I'm, I need some two cases of bottled water. I'm gonna go to Best Buy for it, right? You you go to Costco or Walmart or whatever the grocery store and you buy cases of bottled water for a few bucks. If you go to Best Buy and you are checking out and you're kind of thirsty and you don't want to drink garbage and you're like, yeah, hey, bottle of water, you look and there's a bottle of water for a dollar fifty three in in the refrigerator there by the, the counter. All Best Buy has done is taken the case, because people want to buy it by the case now, and said $1.53 times 36 or whatever. That's all they've done. And then people are buying it and screeching about it. And that's because of that last-minute panic buy. But that's not really hoarding. Right? Hoarding is when you're buying more than you can use because you're afraid. Now, I guess that can happen at the end, but usually it doesn't because... They put limits on how much you can buy. There's only so much there. So the person contributing to it really only goes home with a case or two of bottle of water, which any other day would have been no big deal and nobody would have batted an eye. The person that's hoarding, you, you, you go up to their upstairs bedroom and you look at the bottles of water and you go, have you done the math on, on the weight of that water relative to the engineering strength of this floor? Because... That might collapse to the floor and kill you in your sleep since your master bedroom's under here. That's the person hoarding bottled water. So now let's take that to two specific things. Let's take it to ammo and let's take it to seeds and in different ways. I believe in storing extra ammo. I have a, a sponsor, Bulk Ammo, that I always kind of point that out whenever I bring them up. I have a lot of ammo. I have thousands of rounds of 22 I have thousands of rounds of 556 um, I have a lot of 45 ACP because it's what I shoot uh, I have a lot of 357 because I own quite a few 357s I have a lot of 44 magnum I don't have anywhere near the amount of 357 and 44 magnum that I do 556 okay I probably have more 556 than I can ever see myself using. Uh, without being able to reload. And we get to reloading and seed saving is the second part of this in a second. I'm not running around buying it right now. I don't need it. I've got it. Pretty much stores forever. Seeds not as much as ammo, but both of them can store for a very long time. My view of buying ammo is be honest about the stuff you use, you train with, and that you would rely on in a grid-down scenario, in the worst-case grid-down scenario. And be honest about it. You're not going to fight Red Dawn 3.0, you morons. I'm sorry, you're not. You do not need 80,000 rounds of 5.56. If you want it, I won't fault you for it. But you are misleading yourself to the reality. And no, you're not going to assemble the new Wolverine militia and be the ammo supply point for everybody either. That is not how things work in a societal breakdown. So... There's a point where you need to look at it and say, would I be better off in the best and the worst of times spending this money or this space that I have to, because anything you buy takes up space on something else. And this is why I'm a fan when it comes to ammo reloading. Go out and buy a couple thousand rounds of the, the two or three things that you use the most of. Uh, you know, Even with the inflated prices and all, 22 long rifles cheap. 
So, you know, three, four, five thousand rounds of that. Cause you can go, and that's the other thing. Like, how fast do you go through it? If you shoot a lot, you can go through two, three hundred rounds of twenty two. That's, that's an hour at the range, right? With semi autos and a couple of people shooting. If you own a bolt action 30-06, and that's the only 30-06 you own, you are only going to go through so much ammo, even if you go to the range every other week with it. And you're only going to shoot a bolt action 30-06 so many more times, so many times before you're like, I'm tired of this now. I'm not a guy that shies away from heavy recoil. And 30-06 is like moderate recoil. But even me, there's a point, you start to get a headache, your shoulder starts hurt, your back starts to hurt. Like, how long do I want to do this to myself? So I only need so much 3006. But most of you could have two or three different powders, a couple cans of each, and components, and then you have other similarities, small rifle and large rifle and small pistol and large pistol primers, and the dies to reload, and you can roll what you need as you need it. So you will find that a lot of powders that do a good job for 308 do a fine job for 30-06, and even do a fine job for 5.56. You will find that if you are an enthusiast like me that likes kind of oddball calibers, uh, that something like H110 will work really great in your 22 Hornet, which is kind of your varminting, you know, your, 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 your center fire version of a 22 is basically what the 22 Hornet is. It's a lot faster, but it's pretty, you can load it down too, right? But if you want to load it to its capability, H110 is the powder everybody that loves the Hornet uses. And it's a good powder for handguns like the 357 Magnum and 44 Magnum. And then with one other powder that you can load down with, you can load those three rounds down. And now you're reusing the most bulky component, which is the brass. Plus you have a hobby that pays for itself, which I also like. Plus you have an entrepreneurial thing that you can do in good times or bad. People can't get ammo, you can reload their ammo for them. People can get ammo, but they want custom ammo, you can reload their ammo for them. Maybe they even send you some space credits to your Jack's Liberty wallet. So with ammo... Just be honest about what you're not going to be ever doing and stop at some point and become a reloader. Because now you have another skill, you have another marketable skill, you have flexibility. Now, what do I actually need today? I can make that for myself. All right? With seeds. Seeds is something you can go overboard with, and I have. I'm kind of much more of an addictive personality with seeds than I am with uh, bullets. The, the, the thing with ammo is, unless you're storing it in a really shitty way, ammo can last 100 years easy. Seeds do have a point where they stop being viable and your germination rate starts to drop. And also, if you buy too much, that's where you can get yourself into trouble. I think what you do is you buy a few new varieties every year and you try them. And the things that you actually grow, and you're actually going to grow, that's what you kind of build up a little reserve with. And then you learn about saving seeds and you make a determination. Does it make sense to even save seeds for this thing? Is this something that I need a dozen seeds a year for? And it doesn't really get that improved by me saving my own seed? And is it something that maybe I would have to do extra work to save seed from? I mean, if it's beans, you just let some beans stay on the stalk a little longer, and when they dry up, you pick them and you have seed. Yeah, do that. You have to make some kind of heroic effort with separation distances and all to save something, and you only want to grow a dozen a year. You know, buy two packs of seeds, and you're good for five years. 
Right? So you make that determination that way, and then you save, and then you trade. But what I think makes a lot of sense is figuring out certain things that you can just get so much seed so easy by just letting one plant go long. You know, we look at something like Swiss chard. Just let one plant sit in the ground, and you'll get more seed than you can use. You can give away seed. I mean, like, seed is something that's it's less harmful than ammo because it costs less money, as long as you don't get really, 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 really dumb with it. But if you're saving seed for the apocalypse, you're probably doing it wrong. If you're not growing it now, where are you going to grow it then? And if you think you're going to, because you read a book, you're going to be the, the person that becomes the new you know, mogul selling seed. If you fancy selling seed, there will never be a better time to go into the business of selling seed than there is right now. There's a tremendous op. There's so many they have the big seed houses, certain varieties and stuff they're out of. And I would say, like, if you if you if that's your justification, then start doing it now and start growing twelve things where the seed is hard to come by or expensive, and get really good at producing those twelve varieties of seed and sell just those twelve, and then maybe add two or three a year and go entrepreneurial with it. Otherwise, just relax. My grandfather fed a family for thirty years, and all the seed that he ever had fit in one cigar box. And he saved about 90% of what he grew, he saved his seed from, and he got the other from either Burpee or Parks Catalog, the old-style way, where you wrote them a letter, and then they sent you back, and then you ordered your seeds if you had a question, like old-school catalog style. And so just anything that we're storing, moderation and be sufficient. That, that's, that's the best answer I can give you there. Uh, last, not last, second to last, I, just a thing on agorism. And I did a show on this recently, so I won't go very deep into it today. But I just, it, I'm thinking of it because of the episode that we did last night with Unloose the Goose, which is now live at UnlooseTheGoose.com. It's episode four. Um, and, and Sal Mayweather was talking about how kind of like the godfather of agorism, Sam Conklin, said that no individual tool of the agorist, agorist would um, take down the system. But the combining of all the tools would eventually take down the system in free society. That each one was a thing. And what I wanted to kind of point out is when we look at any one of them, the, the, the super enthusiast of a thing. And whether it's, you know, maybe it's agorism as a whole that people think of this way. Some like, you know, they're going to take down the, 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 the beast by selling tacos out of their house. You're not going to take down the beast by selling tacos out of your house, but a thousand people selling tacos out of their house is a piece of what takes down the beast, or at least weakens the beast, or just empowers you. It doesn't matter if everybody wins. It matters that the people that try to win are able to win for themselves and not harm others while doing it. See, this is again, this is back to this selfish being a bad word. That's so many things they've done. It's convinced us that a word is a bad word. And boy, that's going to really hit home with our last segment. I'm going to really drive that home for you then. Um, but so when we think of being selfish and focusing on ourselves, we think of being as bad. We've been taught that. Well, it's a great way to control people is tell them that if they do for themselves, they're bad. Because then they won't do for themselves. They'll do for the collective. 
Well, hello, socialism. See how simple that is? How easy the psychology of controlling you by teaching you when you're in kindergarten that, social, that being selfish is bad? Now, selfish can be bad. But focusing on yourself isn't necessarily bad. Focusing on yourself means not messing in the li around in the lives of others and telling them how to live. I like that. It means seeing to your own needs so that you're not a drain on others. That's positive as well. So if we look at, 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 at agorism and we say, okay, if I want these things in my life and I can use agorism to get some piece or all of that, then does it matter whether it topples the system or not? Or does it matter that there's thousands or millions of people living the way they want to live in spite of the system with very little the system's able to do about it because it's all disconnected? It's all decentralized. That, that's how we have to look at it. And when that ties back into cryptocurrency that I talked about earlier, there are people that think like Bitcoin will take down the banking system and take down the, 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 the oligarchs and the plutocracy and, and what have you. It's not going to. It's not a silver bullet. It's an arrow in the quiver of the individual agorist. It is one arrow in your quiver. And we have to look at arrows in these quivers the way of like the very traditional archer or the way of the art, the completely nonsensical archer in a video game or in a comic book. Not every arrow is for every situation. Being a little more realistic, if, if you are an archer you'll, and you've done anything except you know, just hunt deer, right? you'll know this, that there are, there are arrows for small game. And so I might use something called a judo point, which is an impact arrow. It has basically a blunt point and has some little, little springy arms that stick out the side of it. And this is so if I shoot a bunny in the head, it's not going to be that, you know, and with a judo point, it will still go into the head. Right, I mean, because it's just, it's only so blunt, and the head is only so strong, so it will usually crack a bunny skull and go into the head some, a little bit. But it's really an impact kill. You can do this, you can take an arrow, and a, a 38 Special or 357 Magnum case or a 9mm case is about perfect size. Put a little epoxy in it, turn it upside down, and stick it on the tip of an arrow. Onto the shaft. And it will... Boom, it's, it's an impact tool. It's not a penetration tool at this point. It's for small game. I wouldn't, oh, look, there's a deer. I'm not going to shoot that at a deer. It's just going to bounce off and piss the deer off, and it's going to run away hurt and injured, but I'm not going to get a deer to eat. Likewise, I don't want to take my beautiful you know, four-blade, razor-sharp broadhead, shoot a squirrel with it, because a lot of things are going to, one, it's overkill. Two, if the squirrel's on a tree, the arrow's going to stick in the tree, and I probably won't be able to get it back. And if I lose an arrow to get a whole deer, okay. But if I lose an arrow to get a squirrel, it's not a good trade. So I use the right arrow in the right circumstance for the right situation. When I'm at home, and I'm up on my roof, and I've got a hay bale in the distance with a picture of a deer on it, and I'm shooting and I'm practicing, I use a thing called the field tip. It's pointed, it's sharp, but it goes into the hay bale, and it's easy to pull out, and I'm not dulling the blades of my broadheads. So I'm using the right arrow for the right situation. They make some arrows with really big feathers. People actually shoot birds out of the air with arrows. You should look up Howard Hill and see some of the shit that cat used to pull off. But they make these kind of big feathers that slow the arrow. So the arrow goes fast for a distance, then it starts to slow down. 
So that way if I miss the bird, or I fully penetrate the bird, my arrow only goes so far. I can retrieve it. I wouldn't want that if I'm taking a 35, 40-yard shot at an elk where I want a really stiff broadhead or you know, I want a different arrow. Right? So when do I use cryptocurrency? When it's the right arrow for what I'm trying to accomplish. If I'm trying to build up credit because I want to buy a house in the real world and I'm going to have to play in their system, then I might use a credit card. I might pay the balance off every, every month carry the balance for like one full day so that it actually goes down as a, a payment instead of never carrying a balance, but I, I might use their system and their money because that is the right arrow. If I have enough land that I can let people come hunt on my land, and I'm not trying to be a professional guy with a license and all that, and I'm only selling to my friends, and I let them come hunt and sit in a blind and shoot some feral hogs, that you know, I charge them $250 to come hang out for the weekend, and they want to pay in Bitcoin, hey, that arrow matches that target really, really, really well. And that's how we have to look at everything within the Agorist tool toolkit, right? Whatever is best for this thing right now and whatever will work. So maybe I would prefer to sell my boat for Bitcoin But if the only thing I can get for it is U.S. dollars, I'll take them. See how that works? And that's, instead of trying to worry about whether Agoras can beat the system, can, 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 can we tear down everything? Can we carve out our own life in a way that's better for us without hurting other people? That is the very definition of non-aggression. All right? So that brings me to my last one today, which is, what is a loophole in reality? This is a great question. I'm going to be recording this one on YouTube as well. So I'll have two segments out of today's show you can share individually. So this question came to me from uh, Tactical Redneck, and it actually came on the blog for the Unloose the Goose podcast for last week's Unloose the Goose podcast that you can find at UnlooseTheGoose.com. And we were talking about loopholes in the law and getting around the system and what I call status jujitsu. Status jujitsu is when you use the system against itself. You figure out a way to be able to do what you want to do, whether or not the state really wants you to do it or not. And this leads to a word that I've talked about a lot in this episode, or a concept I've talked about a lot in this episode, making a word that's a perfectly good word into something dirty and bad that you don't want to touch. Ew, it's nasty that you're conditioned throughout your childhood in school and conditioned by the media constantly to this is a bad word that you don't want to use. Because what we're talking in there is often referred to as a loophole in the law. And you often hear loopholes as a, this is a very bad thing. It's so rich people cannot pay taxes. Well, a loophole in the taxes is so that you, if you know what the hell you're doing, cannot pay as much taxes. Yeah, the rich people wrote it for themselves. That's, that's absolutely abundantly clear that they did so. But as I teach and I've taught for, you know, a dozen years now, the tax code is huge. It's, it's massive. Like it's, it's 20 old style, uh, yellow pages for a major city stacked up on top of each other, right? It stacks them almost as tall as an adult man if you stand next to the tax code. But what's in that tax code? I say it's 10%. It's actually less though. There's actually a very small portion of it that says, this is what you must pay. If you make money, there's like only a few different ways you can earn money that's considered taxable income. 
There's you know income from labor. There's capital gains. There's dividends. There's a few other ways, real estate income, etc. But there's only a very small number of ways that income is classified. And so each type of income, you basically see how much of it there is, how much you make in total, and that gives you a rate, and that's how much you have to pay. How much tax code is really necessary for that? A few pages. It's a few pages in a chart. This is not why the code is huge. Everything else in the tax code is designed to tell you how to get out of doing what the little bit says you have to do. And we, reflect, we, we call those loopholes. And when the media teaches us about it, when school teaches us about it, it's all bad. It's all for the fat cats. It's not for you. It's for you, too, if you use it. So we were talking about things like this, and what Tactical Redneck asked is, can somebody please define exactly what a loophole is? What does a loophole mean? A loophole isn't really a thing. It's just a colloquialism. It's something we came up with to describe something that is, to give it a name. Right? That's, that's what it really comes down to. And then it was, it was vilified and made bad. But the way I can explain a loophole is to explain something that people do not consider a loophole. They don't consider a loophole at all. They just consider it following the law. But it's, it's a loophole, and when I get to the end, you'll understand why. So how about owning a suppressor? For those that aren't familiar with the term suppressor, because somebody shared this with you or, or whatever, uh, a silencer for a gun. I can own a silencer for a gun completely legally. Now, if I just go out and buy one and I have it in my possession, it is a federal felony. They will send me to a place I don't want to go to that we call Club Fed, which is a, you know, a, a federal prison. I will have a felony on my record. It will ruin my life even after I get out. It will take away and strip rights from me for the rest of my existence. I will forever be a felon. If I try to get a job, I'll have to answer a question with, have you ever been convicted of with a felony? As yes. But most people are aware, and if you're not, there's a thing called a, a tax stamp. You can buy. It's like 200 bucks. You fill out some paperwork. It's an invasive background check. It's kind of like getting a metaphorical proctology exam uh, to make sure that you're not a bad person that you know can somehow go destroy the world with your little tube with some stuff in it that makes the sound of a gun less. That's all it really is. But again, that little tube, if they can prove it really is a suppressor or you've affixed it to a weapon so that it can suppress, is a federal felony. But you fill out this little magic piece of paperwork, you give them 200 of your federal reserve note space credits, and you wait somewhere between six months to a year, and they'll send you back a thing that says you can now buy your suppressor. And I can go buy a suppressor. Now, most people would say, well, that's not a loophole. Isn't it? Really? Because understanding this is how you understand how all of the loopholes work. It's just a better understanding of the law and taking the steps necessary to comply with the law so that I can do something that you can't. So now let's imagine I have a friend named Fred. I'm standing there with my suppressor in my hand. And a cop walks by, and he goes, hey, that's a suppressor. Yeah, it is. Go screw. It's my suppressor. None of your business. And he wants to push it. So I pull out my magic piece of paper and say, this is my magic piece of paper. Here's my suppressor. Go piss off. Now, I don't treat police officers that way. I'm just saying that I, I could. Now, he might find some other reason to harass me, but there's, there's literally nothing you can do now. 
I can be at the same range, cops sitting next to me, firing with a suppressor. Hey, do you have it? Yeah, here's my magic piece of paper. Fuck off. All right? I mean, that's legitimately, that's where this goes. I can do this now. Fred, sitting right next to me, does not have his magic piece of paper. Maybe Fred's a nicer guy than me. Maybe Fred didn't even know that he wasn't allowed to have this little tube that screws onto the end of his gun. That same cop can arrest him and convict him of a felony. I can do something he can't right next to him because I've structured the way that I'm doing it differently. That's a loophole. That's all that it means. It means that you've understood the restrictions around you enough that you are able to do something that other people can't do or do not believe that they can. Here's a more colored version of it, a little bit harder to understand. And I'm not going to get too specific because I may not remember exactly, but one of our guys in, in, the, in the goose gaggle, uh, John Bush, sells Kratom. And he was doing something somewhere where they were giving away like a shot of Kratom for people to try when they were doing other business. And law enforcement in uh, you know Austin area came in and said, Hey, that's food and beverage. You're giving people a drink. You don't have a license to, to sell food and beverage here. And I don't remember the total story behind it, but basically they put it in a sealed jar and then gave it as a sample. And that made it no longer food and beverage in the way that you would enforce the law. Like when you go to Starbucks and they have to have us, you know, depending on city, county, tax uh, situations or whatever, they had, you know, you, you buy a coffee from Starbucks, they have to be a restaurant or have some license or whatever it was. Well, also they didn't have to have it anymore. Just by putting it into a jar. Now that was done by John reading and understanding the law and what the law said. And when they came back to harass them, he pointed it out and they left him alone. Now, there's no guarantee you'll be left alone. And this is why when you're playing with what we refer to as loopholes, you better, one, know what you're doing, and two, assess your risk. So if you think you found another loophole to owning a suppressor, you probably have not, if it does not involve having that stamp, and you think I'll be able to get away with this, an officer arrests you. And then you pull out your loophole card when you get to in front of a judge, and the judge says, you're wrong. What happens now? You're going to Club Fed. Well, what happens if you do the loophole thing with like the food and beverage? You're probably getting a fine for a few hundred dollars. Now, you might want to know what the actual consequences are. And a fine that I get that's like, yeah, I tried, might you know, mean you can't feed your kids for the last week of the month. So you have to judge that, too. But that's all a loophole is, is sufficiently understanding something to the point where you're able to do it where others either don't think they can or are not able to, and to do it in a way where your ass is covered. Here's kind of another way where I really never needed to use a loophole, but I needed to use strategy so I didn't deal with a cop doing all that she could to ruin my life, on, just even on that day. So one day, it was long ago, I'm outside in my backyard and I have a little trap and I'm shooting a pellet gun. I had a neighbor that was a Karen. We didn't call them Karens back then. This was a long time ago. But she, today you'd call her a Karen. So she called the police and said she was in grave fear for her safety and her children's safety that this gun was going to kill somebody. This was a pellet gun being fired into a pellet trap, not in her direction, by the way. No way this could cause her any grief whatsoever. This lady cop comes and she starts telling me that it's illegal for me to discharge a pellet gun in the city of Arlington, Texas, which I know is not true. 
But I don't 100% know that it's not true. I'm not sure. All she wants me to do is say, I'll stop. What I want to say is, go screw yourself. I'm not stopping. It's not illegal. If you want to cite me for it, cite me for it. Well, this could open up a whole can of worms I'm not comfortable with today, so I just agree. Okay, Officer Karen, I will not fire my gun anymore today. So then the next thing I did was call the, poli the non-emergency number for the Arlington Police Department. That's this was Mansfield Police Department. And said, can I speak to the chief of police? And they said, no, you may not. And I said, well, I have a, a very important question here. And Officer Karen Karen, was just not, I couldn't remember really if I wanted to, but gave her full name and her badge number, which I took down. She was fine with giving it to me, was just at my home, and she told me something, and I would like to verify it. Can I speak to someone that's in her chain of command? They actually put me in touch with an assistant chief that was her boss's boss. Great. That's what I wanted. And all I said is, here's the situation. This is what I was doing. This is the safety precautions I was taking of. She told me that a pellet gun is classified as a firearm in the city of Mansfield. I don't believe that's true, is it? And he said, well, absolutely not. It's not true. I said, is there anything that legally prevents me from discharging a pellet gun in my backyard the way that I was doing it, as long as that's what I was actually doing. He said, no. I said, great, let me get your name and your badge number. And and who, what officer is between you and Officer Karen? And he gave me that. He was very nice. And then the next day I went out and I had my pellet gun and I was shooting into my thing. And guess who came back? Officer Karen, who said, I thought we discussed this and I wasn't going to have to do this again. It's funny thing about that, Officer Karen. I called your your police department. I spoke to Assistant Chief so-and-so. Do you know who he is? She got like a little bit smaller and a little less cocky and said, yes, I, I know who he is. And he told me that you report to Sergeant so-and-so. Is that, yeah, yeah, I work for him. Well, he was supposed to let Sergeant so-and-so know this, and I don't know if he got the chance to let you know that. Yeah, but uh, what you told me is incorrect. It is completely legal for me to discharge this pellet gun in the manner in which I'm doing it. You may go tell my neighbor that, or you may just leave her to be upset about it. But I was told by Assistant Chief so-and-so that you work for that there's nothing illegal about what I'm doing. And she just kind of sat there and looked at me defeated. And I said, and ma'am, if I may, I, I kind of think that when you told me that a pellet gun was classified as a firearm in the city of Mansfield, you knew that was wrong. And you just didn't want me to do this, and you thought your life would be easier if I didn't do it. But I wanted to be sure, so I contacted your police department, and I asked them if what I was doing was illegal, and they told me it wasn't. So at this point, if you still feel that it's illegal, I have written down everybody's name, I've documented the conversation, and I am happy to allow you to issue me a citation, and I'll show up in court, and we can tell a judge that you say it's illegal, and I say it's not, and we can have. So if, if you'd like to cite me for this, you may do so now. And she just said, Look, could you do me a favor and please just not do this anymore? And I said, I'm sorry, no. Why would I do you that favor? What do I owe you? And I'm not being mean, but what do I, why do I owe you that? Well, she, you know, it's good to get along with your neighbors. I, I don't talk to this neighbor. I don't really know her. I don't really want to. The, the fact she did that, like, she's the one generating your issue now. Why don't you go speak to her and explain to her I'm not violating the law? Is there anything else I can do to help you? Well, sir, no, except door closed. I'm not going to be mean. I'm not going to be rude. But if there's nothing else I can do to help you, I didn't ask you to come here. Goodbye. That's 
Not actually a loophole, but that's understanding the law. And that's all a loophole is. There really is no such thing as a loophole. It's really not a loophole. It's a made-up name that's been bastardized so that you won't do what you have every right to do. Stand up for your rights under the law and say, there's nothing that actually says I can't do this. Or, in order to do this, these are the things I'm required to comply with. The other example I gave on that episode was we wanted to sell raw milk in West Virginia. Almost impossible to do. You can't even sell it for pet food. It's impossible. They will, you know, they will arrest you if you say, I'm selling this raw milk for Fido. Because they know it's a loophole. Right? It's a loophole. And they closed that loophole. And they said, you can't sell raw milk for pet food in the state of West Virginia. I can't sell raw milk to my neighbor in West Virginia for their dog to drink. And I can't have a cow share. That's where I, I take care of your cow, and you and five other people own it. And I, I take care of it, I milk it, and every week you come get your share of milk from your cow. That's another loophole that has been used. So West Virginia closed that loophole. So we sold raw milk for use as a soil amendment. And we put on the label, it is, it is a violation of West Virginia law to use this product in a manner inconsistent with its labeling. So raw milk is actually a great soil amendment, and there's nothing in West Virginia law that says you cannot sell milk as a soil amendment. So we did. And if Bill bought it and decided to drink a soil amendment, not my fault, not my liability, and I never told Bill he could drink it, I might have told Bill that we milk the cow, and to make sure your soil amendment is as fresh as possible, we immediately refrigerate it at a temperature of XYZ. That's a loophole. But it's not a loophole. It's just a word we made up. And we made sound bad so that you won't do what you have every right to do and you will see it as something only bad people do, i.e. rich people, and they will do it and they will make their lives better with it and you will sit and not act. That's all a loophole is. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up, folks. Um, I have a uh, reminder for you guys that we do have the MSB on sale right now. Uh, the discount code for MSB is Delta Force, D-E-L-T-A-F-O-R-C-E, one word, all lowercase. That will get you the MSB for 25 versus 50 bucks. If you want to be an MSB member and you're not yet, Survival Podcast, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, fill out the form and use that discount code during sign up and you'll get half off the MSB. Also, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day today are the two best hose nozzles that I've been able to find. Uh, one is made by a company called Icarus, uh, and the other one is, uh, basically, it is a, just the old-style solid brass hose nozzles that, like your grandfather owned. They look like a little miniature version of a, what a fireman would use for a fire hose. Uh, and they're made by a company called Nicest, N-Y-S-I-S-T. They both have advantages. I'm not going to go into them now. I did a really great video. When I brought this around back in June, I said that I did this because so many hose nozzles are garbage, and I actually have thrown more than a few of hose nozzles over my fence into the, my neighbor's woods like a deranged boomer screaming about how they don't make things like they used to. So I went out of my way. I bought every hose nozzle that looked promising. I tested them all. And I gave away all the ones that I decided were garbage. And these were the two that I decided were the best I've kept and I've used. When I ran this item in June, the Icarus nozzle sold out on Amazon completely in a day. Right now they have like 18 in stock. 
The other one kind of stays around. And so when I saw that it came back in stock, I wanted to make you know that it was available today. Check out the write-up. Check out the review. If you're on the Daily Mail, it'll be in that. If you're not, just go to the Survival Podcast and scroll down. You'll see the reviews on them. But if you're tired of throwing away junk hose nozzles, you want one of these. I do want to tell you, one person sent me a picture of an Icarus nozzle that they got broken. It was smashed. I don't know how this happened, but it had to happen in transport, and it had to be really abusive care. This is not a manufactured problem. As far as I know, they returned it, got their money back, whatever. That's the beautiful thing about Amazon. But uh, that's the item of the day, and you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Brings us to our song of the day today. Song of the day today is Life's Been Good to Me So Far by Joe Walsh. Yeah, I've always loved this song. I remember the first time I heard this song was somewhere in the 80s. It was right after I got uh, my first car. And a buddy got in the car and that old Radio Shack tape deck. He's like, you got to hear this song, man. He put it in that. I was like, this song rocks, you know. And my Maserati does 185. He had a Monte Carlo. We used to change it to my Monte Carlo does 125. Uh, the, the words in it. But I've just always liked the song. I've been trying to play kind of upbeat, happy songs for you this week. And I think that if you live the best life you can, you will find life is pretty good to you. But I also want to point out that There's a lot of people that will never have a great life because they see everybody that is successful as kind of either lucky or shady or something like that. There are people that, you know, when they hear the word loophole, they think, oh, that's a bad thing only bad people use. There are people that think focusing on your own, th your own needs first is a bad thing. But they actually, that's what they do. They just do a really bad job of it. Everybody focuses on their own needs first. But if you do a bad job, you end up with a bad life. And there's one line in this song that I think really drives at home. And I think that, that Walsh was really saying, like, this song kind of was an F.U. to some former bandmates. Especially one. I'll leave that out. Don't need to go into anybody's little feuds today. But this was more to, like, the industry and people in general, outside of his group of fans. Because he's very appreciative in this song to his fans. But the one line is, they say I'm lazy but it takes all my time. And you look at this life that a, that a person like Walsh has, especially at the time the song came out, and say, man, he's got it made. But every person you look at and you think about it that way, they work damn hard to get what they have. Even when you think there's some reality TV celebrity and all, do you know how many people try and fail at that? How many people try and fail at that? And most people, when they've got it made, and you're thinking, man, they can just coast now. The difference between them and you, they could coast, but they're not. And I identify with that line. They say I'm lazy, but man, it sure takes up all my time. Ben Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.